So welcome, everyone. I'm Eric Boutin. I'm a software development manager working on Amazon Aurora. And I'm joined today uh, by Steve Abraham, who will join us in the second half of the, uh, of the talk. Uh, so today, we're going to talk about Amazon Aurora Multimaster, specifically scaling out the uh, right performance of a database. So we'll start by a short overview of Amazon Aurora. We'll introduce Multimaster, what it is, how it works. We'll do a deep dive in the architecture. So over there, we'll talk about the, uh, the architecture itself. We'll talk about the conflict detection, conflict resolution, how conflicts are handled. We'll talk about the consistency models. And um, after that, we'll shift over to, uh, so Steve is going to cover the best practices as well as the demo. So let's start. OK, so what is Amazon Aurora? So Amazon Aurora is, the, is an enterprise database delivered at open source price. So what do we mean by that? Um, it, is, it has the speed and availability of a high-end commercial database. It has the simplicity and cost-effectiveness of uh, open source database. So for example, uh, it has drop-in compatibility with MySQL and Postgres. And it has a pay-as-you-go pricing. So you don't need to acquire any technology cost. OK, so what's special about Aurora? For that, we'll need to start you know, from, from the beginning of database history. So traditionally, databases have been built in the monolithical stack, so meaning the, uh, the compute and transaction processing are co-located with the storage all in a single box. And it trades off performance for durability and availability. Now, eventually, architectures have evolved to decouple the storage from compute to use network storage. But overall, it's still the same stack. Now, if we turn to existing multi-master solutions, the, uh, the first architecture that we look at is architectures using distributed lock managers. So these architectures use shared storage, where all the nodes share the same uh, share the same disk, and they have a distributed log manager, which is a very heavyweight synchronization protocol, which really impacts the uh, scaling characteristic of the system. So those systems tend to have negative scaling. Then there are solutions using a global ordering unit. So those systems also introduce a, a single point, which is a, the, the ordering unit. And this is a scalability bottleneck as well. Then there are architectures which use range partitioning and uh, multiple independent uh, packs of string. This architecture tends to have a very heavyweight uh, coordination and uh, cost in terms of the, cons uh, the commit protocol and the consensus protocol. And transactions which touch more than one partition have a very heavy performance impact. OK, so what's special about Aurora? How did we do it different? So the first innovation that we did in terms of architecture is to push down the log applicator to the storage level. So what this means is that the, uh, the database instance, so the head node, construct log records and send them to the storage. And the storage itself uh, is going to apply the log record and construct pages in the background. So the database instance never actually has to write page. It just 
sends log record, and the pages get constructed in the background by the storage. This allows us to greatly reduce write amplification. We'll touch over that in more detail later. Um, but it does allow to uh, really improve the performance. The second innovation is to have a distributed, uh, distributed shared storage volume. So the storage volume of a database in Aurora is split into 10 gigabyte chunks. And uh, so here we see, oh, sorry, over there. Um, so all the little squares, you can think of them as individual 10 gigabyte chunks. And uh, they are distributed across three availability zones using six-way replication total. So this allows multiple benefits. The first one is it allows to uh, support, it is he very heavily fault tolerant. We can lose an entire availability zone plus one node and still continue to, uh, to serve read and, and still not lose any data. It also allows to scale read in a very efficient way. So you can scale read by just adding another instance. You don't actually need to replicate the whole data or to have an, an entire storage volume, an entire copy of the data for each writer. And then it also enables instant database recovery. So usually database, when they start up, they need to reapply the redo log, reconstruct the page before they can come online. But in Aurora, this process constantly happens in the background. It's done by the storage node. And so this is not something that the database has to do on startup. As a result, we can do instant database recovery. OK, now what's new with Multimaster is now you can also add writers, which allow to have write scale out, so to be able to, to increase the uh, write throughput by adding more writers. And it also allows to have continuous availability which is that node fail and recover independently. OK. So we'll now uh, do a deep dive in the architecture. So we just talked about uh, rescaling on Aurora. So on, Aurora, on provisioned Aurora, so the single writer version, the, uh, you can add a read replica, and the writer only has to send uh, the page cache update to the replica. The replica doesn't need to re-execute the write and write to, to its own separate volume. The only thing it has to do is to make sure that its own in-memory copy of the, of, the, of the data, so the buffer cache, stays up to date. And this is asynchronous. The writer sends the log record down to the shared storage volume, and the read replica can read from that same shared storage volume. And now with Aurora Multimaster, it's just a natural extension. You can add writers. All the writers send each other page cache updates. So the, the buffer pool stays consistent. And all the writers can send writes down to the same storage volume. So all the instance can independently execute write transactions. Um, and the, the difference in the storage is that now the, uh, the storage volume can, has the ability to do optimistic conflict detection, which we'll touch shortly. So if we kind of summarize and compare the I.O. profile of Aurora and Aurora Multimaster with MySQL with Replica, we really see the difference. 
the, uh, so in MySQL, you would need to send the, uh, the log record. So the, the database instance needs to write the log record, needs to write the page, needs to write to a double write buffer to avoid page corruption. And so it replicates all of that to the replica, and then both will write to EBS, and then EBS itself has mirroring. So we're talking about a fair bit of write amplification here. By contrast, in Aurora, the only thing that the head node has to write is the log record. It writes it down to the storage level, to the storage layer, and we send uh, cache, well, the, the message to update the buffer cache asynchronously. Okay, so I was mentioning that each node can independently execute transactions. Here we'll look at an example of what this means in practice. So here we have a setup where we have two nodes, so let's call them blue and yellow, okay? At the bottom, we have the shared storage volume. So this is the box here, and we see in the storage volume, we, so here this is, you can think of those as all the changes or, or all the delta changes that have been produced by both writers, so they're ordered. And both nodes, here we see the, this is, we represent the set of delta change that they have been aware of, okay? So let's start. Here, let's say that blue executes a write on behalf of a transaction. So it writes to, it writes to produce a few different log records. And um, we see that those writes immediately go to the storage volume, but yellow is not yet aware of those change because replication is asynchronous. Okay, now uh, the, uh, the yellow writer produces some writes, and at the same time, the, uh, the blue master also writes, produces some writes. The shared storage volume here at the bottom has the full picture of all the writes, but each node is not necessarily aware of the writes that the other node has done yet. Each node sees all of its own writes, but the writes from the other node are subject to replication delay. Okay, so here, uh, yellow just learned about the first batch of write from blue. Um, okay, then blue decided to commit the transaction. So here, blue actually has been able to commit the transaction even if yellow is not aware that some of the writes of the transaction ha have actually happened and uh, so each node can actually commit transactions fully independently. Transactions in Aurora Multimaster are only committed and acknowledged after all the writes have been confirmed, which means that there's no conflict, meaning they, yes, they, they've been uh, confirmed not to have any conflict. Okay, now we continue. Yellow learns about some of the writes, learns that the transaction has been committed, and a few more writes happen. Yellow decides to commit a transaction, and so on. Okay, so we've talked about how both nodes can independently write and commit transaction. Now let's look in a bit more detail about the conflict resolution. Uh, so we start with the, actually a non-conflicting, an example of a non-conflicting write. So here we have an example where we have, again, two nodes, the blue node, the blue master and the orange master. On the right, we have two clients, C1 and C2. So the clients are at the top, and uh, there's two writers. And then we have the storage volume here. So here, 
we keep it simple. We say that there's only two pages in the database. The, the writes in uh, Aurora are six-way replicated. So here we see there are six replicas of each. And there's only two pages, each with six copies. OK. So the first example that we're covering is where each line just writes, let's say, to different tables. So C1 begin a transaction. C2 also begin a transaction at the same time. They both send an update to a row in a different table, so they'll touch different page. And uh, the writes are going to be confirmed because there's really no conflict here. And the transactions will be independently, uh, will be independently committed. Eventually, the, uh, both nodes will learn about the, the transaction that the other node committed, but it is not on the critical path of commit. Okay. So here, this is what we mean by node can independently commit transactions. So there's really no synchronization between both nodes on the critical path of commit. Okay, so now let's look at a, a physical conflict. So it's the same setup, two clients, two writers, but now they're trying to write to the same row. Or maybe they're trying to write to different row, but the rows are located in the same page. So page in Aurora is 16 kilobyte. So they, they both begin transaction, they both update the row. And now let's say the blue one was first. So blue one actually has its right confirmed, but orange actually has its right rejected because it is, a confl it, it is a conflicting with another right. So orange has to roll back its transaction. So this is what we mean by conflict, optimistic conflict detection on the storage. Both nodes independently write. They don't need to lock each other. They don't need to talk to each other. They just independently write to the storage, assuming that there's not going to be any conflict. And if there's a conflict, then the, uh, the victim transaction has to roll back. OK, now let's look at a different type of conflict, which is a logical conflict, which happens um, We'll get over that. Okay, so same setup again. Two clients, two writers. Again, they both begin transactions at the same time. So C1 here uh, sends an update to a row, sends an update to page one, to a specific row. And the write is asynchronously replicated to orange. So here, let's in that example, let's say the client two started a transaction, but didn't send any update right away. They, he, Maybe he waited like 15 milliseconds or so. So C2, an orange master, is actually has received the write from the blue master. At this point, orange is aware that the row has been updated by C1, and is also aware that the transaction has not yet been committed. Now let's say that the client 2 is trying to update that row. At that point, Orange is going to detect that transaction two is trying to overwrite a row from an active transaction, and is not going to allow that. It's going to roll back. So this case, if it was to happen in a single uh, in a single writer database, C2 would actually uh, have a lock wait. It would wait behind C1 to commit. In Aurora Multimaster, there's no distributed locks, so but we still detect that uh, 
transaction two. So C2 is trying to overwrite an active transaction from C1, and we don't allow that. So C2 has to roll back here. B1, uh, C1 can, uh, can now commit. Okay. Yeah, so this is, so here this example, it illustrates that even without any heavyweight synchronization, even without distribute locking, we can have the same level of uh, consistency as a regular Aurora or regular MySQL. Okay, so to summarize the conflict detection, Aurora Multimaster uses optimistic conflict detection. The storage nodes detect the conflict, and a transaction is only committed after and acknowledged after all the writes from the transaction have been durable and also have been, uh, all the conflicts have been resolved, meaning that none of the writes from the transaction are in a conflict. Okay, so we've talked about rights and conflict. Now let's talk a bit more about the reads and about the consistency models. Aurora Multimaster offers two consistency models. The first one is the default, is instance level read after write. So in this model, transaction can see all the transactions previously committed on this instance. This is obviously all the transactions that committed before the transaction started. And it can also see the transactions committed on the other node, but it is subject to a replication lag. And then we have regional read after write. Region, in regional read after write, transaction can observe all transactions previously committed on all instances of the cluster at the time of the start of the transaction. So let's look an at an example to see what it means in practice. So here we have a database with two tables, and let's say this is a social media database or something like that. Let's say there's two tables. There's one table that keeps some information about profiles, like the relationship status, for example, and there's another table which contains the, uh, the posts that one person would have posted. Okay, and then we have two writers, the blue writer and the yellow writer at the bottom, that have asynchronous replication, as is the case in Aurora Multimaster. Okay, so here we start where John sends a transaction to the first writer, to the blue writer, where he updates its status to engage. So he begins that transaction, update the status, commit the transaction. So the transaction commit, it is eventually gonna be asynchronously replicated to the other node, but it's not replicated yet. Now, in a separate transaction, John connects to the other, the yellow writer, and it, it inserts into the post table. So here he inserts a post that he uh, proposed to Sarah. Okay. Now we have Bob, and Bob is reading from the second instance, from the second, uh, from the yellow writer. He reads the content of both tables, and he sees that uh, John is single, but that he proposed to Sarah, and he's a bit confused. Now, if Bob was using regional read after write, he would see all the previously committed transaction at the time of the uh, start of the transaction, so he would actually see both the John status is engaged, and he would see the post. Now, I do wanna call out that 
if John had updated the status and inserted the post in the same transaction, then Bob would always have a consistent view even when using instance level read after write. But it's not always possible to uh, design applications like that, so this is why we, we also offer regional read after write as an alternative. Okay. The consistency model is a property of the session, so you can change the session, uh, you can change the consistency model of each session or each connection independently. Here we have an example on how to do this. You just need to set the uh, MM, Aurora MM session consistency level to a regional read after write instead of the default, which is instance read after write. Okay, so we've looked at the, uh, we've looked at the, the architecture, we've looked at how conflicts are handled, we've looked at the consistency model. Now let's look at some numbers to actually see how this works in practice. So here we have a performance comparison between one writer and two writer. This is uh, running a R4.8XL instance type. So on the top row where we have one writer uh, in this work, so this is a workload with 50% read, 50% write mix. So one, uh, one writer under this workload, we're able to execute 98,000 reads plus 98,000 writes for a total of just a little bit under 200,000 writes, uh, 200,000 operations per second, sorry. And then we, when we scale up, when we add a second R4.8XL instance, now uh, we see that the numbers actually double. We have uh, each, uh, so total, we're able to execute 197 reads plus 197,000 writes per second for just a little bit under 400,000 operations per second. Now here we're looking at an example where we see both the scalability and the continuous availability, which is one of the things that we had started with. So in the example, we start here where we are executing on a cluster with two instance, so two instance of type R4.4XL. And uh, so we're executing just a little bit under 100,000 uh, writes per second. Now, at th this point in time, we're actually stopping one of the instances. So we're, well, we're actually hard killing it. And so here we execute with only an R4 for Excel. So here, the, what is interesting to notice is that the throughput never actually drops to zero. So each data point in this graph represents the, uh, the average throughput in a 10 second time interval. So we see that during no time, during no 10 second time interval, did the throughput ever dip significantly between half of the throughput of what it was. So this is what we mean by continuous availability. Nodes can fail and recover independently. Even if a node fails, the other node still has the ability to continue to take write and continue to take to um, execute transaction and it doesn't blink. Now here, we're adding, an, we're adding a second instance back in the cluster, but this time we're adding an 8XL instance. So now we have an R4 8XL plus the original R4 4XL. And we see that the throughput is now 140,000, well, just a little bit under 140,000 writes per second aggregate throughput. 
Now in this example, the, the uh, application that generated the load actually it was, is, uh, it monitored the health of the cluster and it handled the failover and repointing the load by itself. So Steve is going to uh, give, go a bit into more detail about how to do that when he's going to talk about uh, in, in his demo. For applications that, uh, for an unmodified application using the MariaDB driver, so an application that doesn't monitor the, the status of each node in the cluster, you just use the cluster endpoint and uh, whatever happens, happens. We see that with multi-master, there's a significant reduction in the failover time perceived by the application. So in a single writer, when using the MariaDB driver, the failover time as perceived by the application is about 50 seconds. But with Aurora Multimaster, it's down to 10 seconds to, for the MariaDB driver to detect that the node is down and then failover. Okay, and now I'm handing it off to Steve. Thank you very much. All right, well thank you, Eric. All right, let's dig into some of the best practices when we're talking about using multi-master. Because multi-master is different than single master and more than just its name, right? Um, let's, let's start off with a little bit of a, a recap. Some of you may already be familiar with some of these concepts, but I want to talk about how they apply not only in multi-master, but also single master. <clears throat> so the first thing that we're going to talk about is the cluster endpoint. Um, many of you are probably already aware that in single master, the cluster endpoint always follows the writer because there's only one writer in a single master, right? And in the event of a failover, we change that DNS alias to point to one of the readers, and the reader will then become the writer, and the former writer will become a reader. Within multi-master, the cluster endpoint will always point to a writer because there is no such thing as a reader in multi-master. Everybody is a reader and writer altogether, right? So whereas it's a best practice in single master to always point at the cluster endpoint for your writes, uh, it's a little, a little different uh, depending on your, your particular circumstance when we're talking about multi-master. With multi-master, it might be okay to just point at the cluster endpoint, or you might want to point to each individual. The demo that I'm going to show in a little bit will actually point to each of the individual ones so that we can do a failover from within the application. But like Eric was pointing out, you might still want to, if you just are unable to change your code or don't want to, you might want to stick with the standard practice of just pointing to a writer and in the event of a failover, have it flip over. In that case, you would use the cluster endpoint uh, still with multi-master. Each instance has an instance endpoint. And so this is true in both single master and multi-master. You can address the instances directly. In single master, we generally recommend against this, the reason being that the, you could be pointing to what is now a writer and then soon becomes a reader, in which case you'll get an error that says something like you can't write to a read-only instance. In multi-master, since we don't have the concept of a reader anymore and everybody is a writer, then in that case, it may be useful to specifically address the each instance like we'll do in the demo. Another feature we have in both single and multi-master are custom endpoints. <clears throat> and custom endpoints allow you to, as the name would suggest, to set aside a subset of nodes in a given cluster for a particular purpose. 
Um, if you're in single master, maybe you want to set aside two or three readers for an analytics type workload. And so you can do that and give it a custom endpoint and point all of your whatever you need to do for your light, lightweight analytics. Remember, Aurora is an OLTP engine. That is the sweet spot, high volume, high throughput OLTP work. But if you need some lightweight analytics, you can point it to that endpoint, and it will do a DNS round robin across all of those nodes in that endpoint. So Eric talked a lot about the internals of how multi-master handles conflicts. And he also talked about non-conflicting workloads. And obviously, it's in everyone's best interest if our workload is non-conflicting. And so remember when I was saying multi-master is a little bit different than single master other than just the name. And a big thing to consider here is the structure of your workload. What it comes down to is that conflicts happen at the page level. So this means that with multi-master, it's okay to have, say, two masters that each point to their own database on a given cluster. That's okay. Maybe you have one database and both masters point to it, but they write to different tables. That's okay, because we're still not touching on anybody's pages. If you have one database and both masters are writing to one table, if the table has partitions and they're writing to separate partitions, we're still okay. If you have one database, one table, no partitions, just a single non-partition table, then you're likely to end up getting conflicts. So it's important to consider for your given workload, if you're thinking about using multi-master, how it would fit into this design right here. Um, and like I said, you can use the instant endpoints to decide which, which writes go to which tables, which databases, or however, you need to separate it to make sure that you don't have any overlapping page conflicts. Now, if you do have a workload that ends up generating some conflicts, obviously you're gonna wanna know about this. The first indication will be at the application level, you will get an actual deadlock message. So your application will throw an exception, the exception will say there's been a deadlock, and then there's been a deadlock victim, we've rolled back that transaction. Uh, as Eric pointed out, the way that we decide who wins and who loses in this deadlock race is that with Aurora, when we do a write and we send those log records down to the six different storage nodes, we have a four out of six write quorum, which means as soon as four storage nodes have accepted that write, we consider that write durable. And eventually we'll take care of the other two nodes and we can talk about that in a different session. In the case of multi-master, if you have two masters that are both writing, whichever one of those nodes gets that quorum first is the one that wins, and the other one gets rolled back. So it's as simple as that. Now, if you, if you are just looking from a monitoring perspective, you haven't noticed, maybe you're catching those exceptions in your application code, but you wanna look and see, are we getting a lot of those? Do we have a highly conflicting workload? Well, then you can take a look at the multi-writer conflict statistics table, and it will give you the table, the index, and it will show you the number and type of conflicts for each of those. So this is something that I would suggest you keep an eye on just to make sure that it should look just like that, ideally, where you have zeros all the way across the board. So now with regard to availability best practices, um, there are a couple of ways to approach this. Right? So we talked already about splitting the workload between the two. 
Uh, that is one approach. You could put, say, 50% of the workload on one, 50% on the other. And then in the event of a failover, you could temporarily move all of the connections over to the single node. So if you envision two nodes, each running at 50% capacity, or let's say 40% capacity, just so we have a little bit of headroom, then during a failover, you would then momentarily have one node running at 80% capacity until the other one comes back online. Um, you want to make sure that you, that you redirect as soon as possible. And the demo that we're going to go through here in a little bit uh, actually does exactly that. It's, it's checking to see if we're getting a connection. If we are, all good. If not, then we're going to just put it on the shelf for a little bit. We're going to try the other instance, and then we'll check back after a little while to see if the first instance is back up and running. And like I said before, the cluster endpoint follows an available instance. So this is another approach. If you are just comfortable, you just want to have, you're, you're comfortable with the sort of active-active, or rather active-passive failover model, and you say, I want to use multi-master. I'm going to write all the time. I have a non-conflicting work. I'm just going to write everything to one master. The other one's going to just be online, and that's going to be my hot failover so that I can fail over to another node that's already online, it's ready to go, there is no, there's no wait for anything to happen or any sort of failover. I'm gonna do that, you can do that with very minimal downtime, and we'll see that in just a minute here. Now, another thing to consider is the cluster health, um, cluster health overall. Now, if you take a look at the information schema replica host status, this is a table that will give you a list of all of the nodes in the cluster. And as you can see, it tells you if the node is online and what the replica lag is in milliseconds. So you can, uh, you can look at the, the health in two different ways. You can either query this table periodically and determine what your cluster topology is and invoke a failover either way based on this, which is what the MariaDB driver does, by the way. It looks at this table rather than looking at, DN looking at you know, failing over DNS. And the other thing is the replica lag in milliseconds. The other way that you can do it, which is the approach that we're going to use in the demo, is we're just going to go ahead and try and open the connection to that endpoint. And if we're successful, well, that, that's all that we need. And if we're not, then we're going to go ahead and use the secondary instead. But this is another tool that you can use to monitor the health in real time. So, done a lot of talking about this demo. Let's see it. So right here, inside of the uh, management console, we're gonna open up a CloudFormation template. CloudFormation, I love it as a tool for creating stacks because you can have a repeatable deployment every time. You can see I'm opening demostack.yaml. We'll click Next. I have a couple of parameters. I need to give it a name. We'll say MM for multi-master. This is a bastion host that will drive the workload. And then I need to specify a key pair for that bastion host as well. Click Next. We'll scroll down. We're going to click Next one more time. One more scroll to the bottom. And when we get down there, we're going to have to agree that it's going to create some IM resources, because this is going to create an entire VPC, all of the networking that's required. It's going to create an Aurora cluster. It's going to create an EC2 instance that has some preloaded software on it, the whole thing. So now we're going to wait. You can see it's creating right now. 
And like I said, it's great to use CloudFormation because you get a consistent build every time. It's, a, it's something that you can check into source control and you can, uh, you can have the same thing. So now our stack has been created. The creation is complete. You can see all of the resources, all the events on the right are, are done. We'll zoom in. And this, what we're going to look at is the template. So I, I'm, I'm kind of scrolling through this a little bit quick. But if you look at the double hash marks, you can see what we're doing on each line of this template. Uh, you know, we're creating private subnets right here. Uh, like I said, we're creating the network all together. As we scroll down, we're going to create the database subnet group. We're going to create the database security group, the MySQL security group, the whole thing, everything that we need for a complete environment. And as we scroll down here, we're going to look at a couple of the specific parameters around Multimaster. You can see right here that we're going to create a database named Sysbench. And then for the engine mode, make sure that we specify multi-master. Right? Now down here, we're going to create two different instances. So we'll create the first instance called Aurora Instance 01. We're going to put it in the AZ US East 1A. Now we create the second Aurora instance. We're going to put this in a different availability zone so that we have high availability multi-AZ deployment. And then for each one of these, we're going to use 2x large instances so that they're the same size. And then you can see we have a few other things. This template in particular creates a uh, CloudWatch dashboard that you can monitor throughput and all kinds of other things. But these outputs right here are going to be important to us in just a minute, because we're going to look and we need to get information about uh, what the, 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 the DNS address is for the Bastion host and other things. So let's scroll through that. And so we're going to scroll down a little bit. So you can see the Bastion host endpoint right there. You can see the cluster endpoint underneath there. And there are other parameters that you can specify in your output uh, that, that you may need after it's created, since they are automatically generated values. So now let's go back to the RDS console. <clears throat> We're going to click on databases. And you can see our cluster here. The cluster is called MM. We have two instances, one and two. You can see that the role is writer for both of them. You can see they're in different AZs, 1A and 1C. You can see their sizes are identical. All right? We'll scroll to the right. And you can see that it even specifies that, yes, we are multi-AZ because we are in two different availability zones. So we've talked about the endpoints. So let's go ahead and drill in. And so on instance one, the endpoint for instance one is right here. So we'll copy that. And we'll set that aside. And then let's take a look at instance number two. Again, we're going to capture that endpoint. And we're going to set that aside. And then we'll also just take a look at the cluster endpoint, which is also in a similar location. We can copy that and set that aside. So now our cluster is up and running. And we have this Bastion host that we've now connected to. And I'm going to launch a Python script that's going to execute a number of queries. And you can see that it says connecting to primary. Now, that's important to note. It also, it also shows queries per second, total queries, et cetera, but the connecting to primary. Now, in a second, we're going to see a bunch of errors happen, because what we're doing is we're failing over. 
is we're gonna resize the primary node. And so there we go. Those are some exceptions that we just captured. Now we're already connecting to secondary. So that was, I don't know, a second maybe that it took us to fail over. And so now we're back on the primary because the primary has come up as a new size. And so again, we had a few exceptions trying to connect uh, to the second, you know, as we failed over, but we're back up in business. So let's take a look at the code that we implemented here. This is a, a fairly rudimentary Python script, but it, it gets the point home. Right here's the main entry point. We're going to create an array of threads, and then we're going to go ahead and start them up, and then we're going to call joins so that we don't exit out of the program. And let's take a look at the thread function, which is the meat of what we're doing. So we're going to loop indefinitely. We're going to generate a random value. And then we're going to do either a select where there's a specific ID, or we're going to do an update with a given ID, or we're going to do an insert. So select, insert, and update are the three that we'll randomly execute. And whatever we pick, we're going to run through this function called execute query. Now, execute query is where we have the logic for connecting to the database instances. So in here, you'll notice that we have some, a couple of global variables, one called primary timeout. And you're going to see in a minute what primary timeout is. But first, we want to capture our current time. What time is it right now? And then once we create the, capture the current time, we're going to create a MySQL connector. And what we want to know now is, is the current time greater than the primary timeout? If it's greater than the primary timeout, then we're not waiting to use the primary. And we're going to go ahead and we're going to try and connect to the primary. So you can see we spit out some information to the console. Then we attempt our connection. Now we're going to try accept block here. So if an exception is thrown trying to connect to that primary, then we're going to just print out the debug information. We're going to, and then we're going to update that primary timeout by taking our current time and just adding 30 seconds. So what we're saying is we're not going to try and connect to the primary again for 30 seconds. We're going to give it some time to cool off and come back online, whatever it needs to do. And so then we're going to move down. The next block is if the current time is less than or equal to the primary timeout, which means that we're in that period of the primary timeout, right? We're, we're waiting for that. Then again, we'll do a try with an exception catch right there. You may be wondering why this is not an else statement. Uh, if you're wondering, it's because in that scenario, we didn't even set that current time until the except in the first block. So it is important in this case that they are two separate distinct if statements. But you can see if we fall into the accept block here, we'll print that out. And then we come down into our final try accept where we're going to execute the query. And then we're going to update the total number of queries executed and then close the connection. Of course, if we get this far and both the primary and secondary are down, this will fail. And so we also have some accept code here to capture anything that might happen during the execution of the query or lack thereof if both nodes just happen to be down. So this is you know, a, a fairly simple um, example of how to implement some high availability in your code. Um, a lot of applications implement a data access layer, which would mean that you would write this code once, and all of your queries would be funneled through something like this. 
Um, in that case, you can achieve very high availability, much higher than you could with uh, single master, uh, because during single master failover, of course, we have to swap nodes, we have to restart the MySQL daemons on both, and like Eric was pointing out, you know, optimistically, you know, we're looking at 10, 15 seconds. If we do it this way, then we can do it in about a second. It happens very quickly. So, in summary, let's, let's look at what multi-master does enable you to do. So it allows you to have multiple writers so that you can scale write throughput. So I've, you know, part of what we do here um, at reInvent, uh, you know, members of the service team, is to meet with customers and listen to what the customers are trying to do and their use cases and how, they can, how, how we can help them to achieve their goals. And scaling right throughput is, is very often, uh, it's a very common goal among our customers. And so this, with the ability to have multiple writers, can allow you to do exactly that, to scale that right throughput. Have writers in multiple availability zones for not just high availability, but continuous availability. It's different here, remember, fundamentally than single master, because in single master, you still have nodes in two different AZs, but you have to have a full failover process. With multi-AZ, there is not really a failover process. It's just start writing to the other node. It's already online and does not need to be altered or modified in any way. And then multi-master is currently available now for uh, Aurora uh, with MySQL 5.6. I'd encourage you to learn more about AWS databases uh, with AWS training and certification. Of course, Amazon Aurora is at the top of that list there, uh, but I would encourage you to check that out while you're here and even after. And I wanna say thank you to everybody for coming out. <laughs>